Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. My name is Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to pick up with part two of our topic on ABG analysis, blood gas analysis. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly encourage you to go back and do so. Uh, to bring you up to speed on where we've come so far, we've talked about what the body does on an everyday basis to maintain the homeostasis of a correct pH balance between 7.35 and 7.45. We looked at what different compensatory mechanisms the body does to buffer and keep that pH in that zone, in that normal zone. And then we ended by looking at the basic definitions of an ABG when you look at the pH value, your PaCO2 value, and your bicarb level, and how you actually interpret the ABG. And so we ended last time by saying that if your pH level is above 7.45, you're going to call it an alkalotic state. And if it is opposite of the trend, then your CO2, meaning your CO2 is going down, we're going to call it respiratory alkalosis. If it is the same direction as your bicarb, meaning the bicarb is going up and the pH is going up, we're going to call it a metabolic. The same is true in the opposite direction. If you have a lower pH than 7.35, we consider it acidosis. And if it is an opposite trend than your CO2, meaning if your CO2 is high and your pH is low, it's a respiratory acidosis. Whereas if your bicarb is low and your pH is low, then it is a metabolic acidosis. And today, as Tanner jumps in here in a second, we're going to really analyze those four different categories and talk about what is going on behind the scenes to result in this issue, to result in this altered ABG reading. But then two, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to fix it and make the patient back to that hemodynamically stable and, and how the body can achieve homeostasis again? So the first thing that we'll talk about today is respiratory acidosis. And like Cole mentioned already, and I feel like we're saying this over and over and over again, but it's really helpful because for whatever reason, I think ABGs just get really confusing and you feel like you can turn yourself around when you're trying to interpret these. But we'll keep saying it again, that a respiratory acidosis means that you're going to have a decreased pH. So a pH that's going to be less than 7.35, as well as an increased PaCO2. So it's going to be inversely related. And that's because you have more acid in the body, which is causing this acidotic picture. So then we're going to consider this a respiratory acidosis. This can be because of an inadequate minute ventilation. So you're not able to exchange or blow off an enough of the CO2 that is going to be produced by the body. Remember, we talked about the equation earlier in last episode, how the hemoglobin is going to be going by the tissues, picking up the CO2. You're going to be having these exchanges and then eventually the CO2 is going to be converted back and then excreted through the lungs. And so this could just be an inadequate minute ventilation. Uh, this could be because you have uh, systems or you have processes that are going on that are producing excess CO2. Think about sepsis, think about uh, malignant hyperthermia, even hypothyroidism. So these are things where you're creating more acid than the body is able to excrete. It could be because of decreased ability to eliminate 
CO2. So we mentioned this, this could be because of your inadequate ventilation. So think about your ARDS pictures or uh, obstructive lung diseases. Could also be from CNS depression. So think about your patient who's in PACU that has had, uh, you know, too much opioid on board and their minute ventilation is greatly decreased. So now you're not able to get rid of the CO2, uh, which will just continue to cause a more acidotic picture. Um, or you could have a problem where you have rebreathing. So think about um, if you have problems with your scavenging system or say, you know, your absorbent is expired and now you're having a lot of rebreathing. This could also be a reason that you have the increased CO2 that is not because your body's creating more acid. It's just as simple as your body is not able to excrete the CO2 because of these different respiratory issues. We mentioned this in the last episode where we talked about the different compensation mechanisms. So we know that respiratory is going to be very fast. It's going to happen very quickly. The response of the kidneys is going to take several days to occur, but the response of the kidneys is going to take longer, even a couple of days to compensate. And so uh, if you have, you know, this respiratory acidosis that continues, the kidneys are going to start to compensate by reabsorbing more bicarb. This is going to try to neutralize the acid. The kidneys will also excrete more hydrogen. We mentioned this in the last episode. So that's where your hydrogen is going to combine mostly with the ammonia and then be excreted. This is going to create an ABG where your CO2 is increased, but the pH is normalized. We would consider this a uh, respiratory acidosis that is fully compensated if you have a normal pH that's a fully metabolic compensation. Uh, again, we'll talk about this here in a little bit as far as understanding what is the driving force behind your uh, imbalance. That's what's going to be important because our body is going to try to compensate. So oftentimes, you know, you might not see that the pH is completely out of range, but you still have these different processes that are happening, whether it's an acidosis or an alkalosis, uh, and many times they're happening at the same time to try to compensate. So it's important that you know what's the underlying driver so that you know where you need to intervene so that you can fix the underlying issue. So if you have a patient with acute respiratory acidosis, what are what can you do? What, what are some steps that we can do to fix this? From an anesthesia standpoint, you need to increase the minute ventilation to you know continue to get rid of that CO2 and even out your pH. This makes sense if you're, you know, in the middle of a case and you get a blood gas, say your blood gas is uh, 7.32 and you look and, you know, your, your end title is reading 45. Maybe you're doing a laparoscopic case and it's been a long case and you're starting to reabsorb the CO2 and now you have you know increased co2 and now your blood gas is showing an acidemia picture well we can fix this by just changing our minute ventilation increasing our rate or increasing our tidal volume and uh you know as the patient would allow obviously that we're not going to get into specific cases here but you would increase your minute ventilation and thereby getting rid of more of that co2 and normalizing your ph it's important to just think about real quickly. I mentioned this at the very beginning of the last episode. What can result from seeing acidosis in these patients? 
And this is where you can get into problems with your catecholamine release. You can also see decreased myocardial contractility. So it's important that you understand this is something that needs to be corrected. And you know you have the tools ideally to, to fix this. So it's important to understand what the underlying cause is and then be able to treat that quickly as it will cause other problems with other body systems. So while we're on the respiratory side of things, let's just talk about the opposite spectrum, which is respiratory alkalosis. So respiratory alkalosis is going to result when you have a minute ventilation that is too high compared to the amount of carbon dioxide or CO2 being produced by the body. So this is the opposite picture of what Tanner was talking about. Now we're breathing too fast and we're not able to produce enough CO2 to maintain at least 35 millimeters of mercury inside of our plasma. And so this increased minute ventilation will obviously cause the PaCO2 to then drop below 35 millimeters of mercury. And when it drops, now that we have less of that acid, it's going to cause our pH to rise and the pH of our plasma is going to become alkalotic. So that's now what gives us this respiratory alkalotic state. So when you look at your ABG, you see the pH above 7.45, you see your PaCO2 below 35 millimeters of mercury, you're going to diagnose the patient with a respiratory alkalosis. So what are the causes of this? How do we get in this predicament? Well, the most frequent cause of this in our job is going to be hyperventilation under anesthesia. So we get a patient back there, we sedate them, we get them intubated, we hook them up to the ventilator, we just set the ventilator off going at a certain rate, a certain tidal volume, and we start doing everything else. We're trying to make sure blood pressure is okay, we're giving antibiotic, putting the bear hugger on, you're trying to do all these other tasks, you're charting, etc., and then you look back over and your end title might be dinging and it's 26 millimeters of mercury. And what you've done is you've hyperventilated the patient and you've started to breathe more than what they would have done if they were naturally controlling their ventilation. And their body is now not keeping up with the amount of CO2 being produced compared to what we're blowing off. And so their CO2 level inside the plasma is dropping. So that's probably the number one cause of, of respiratory alkalosis that we're going to see. And obviously, you can just treat this by, by correcting the, the cause of the increased minute ventilation. So we would just back down on either our rate, back down on our tidal volume, and raise that end tidal back up. So in essence, what we're doing here is we're just going to lower the patient's minute ventilation and cause that CO2 to rise back up. Other causes of this increased minute ventilation can also be anxiety or pain. So in the PACU, you may have a patient that you've extubated, you brought to the recovery room, and they are just struggling in pain. And they're going to be hyperventilating, breathing quickly. And this is them naturally breathing, but they, again, in turn, can hyperventilate because of that pain level. Or it could be in pre-op, they're very anxious about their procedure, and they're going to be hyperventilating, and it's going to cause this respiratory alkalotic state. Other causes uh, can be liver disease, pregnancy, this is seen in, um, et cetera. These are just some causes to name a few. But really here, the biggest thing is if it's due to an increased minute ventilation, we got to figure out how to slow that respiratory rate, how to bring down that minute ventilation. And so if they're in pain, if they're anxious, then what are we going to do? Well, we're going to treat that. We're going to give them some pain medication. We're going to give them some Versed in the pre-op setting, whatever, whatever we need to do to calm them down slow down that breathing 
and let their CO2 rise back up. The very last point I want to mention under this is that the kidneys are going to start compensating by decreasing the reabsorption of bicarb. And if you have less bicarb being reabsorbed back into the blood, that means more bicarb is going to be excreted and we're going to have less bicarb inside of our body. And that drop in bicarb will then cause the pH to drop because we have less base now in our body. And so the pH will drop back down to a normal level. But as Tanner mentioned before, the kidneys are slow to react. It can sometimes take several days for this really to take an effect. So in the, in the course of just our case that we're doing anesthesia in, the, the change in minute ventilation that we're going to do is going to be the quickest response to treat this. So next, let's talk about metabolic acidosis. So this is going to be when your body is collecting excess acid other than CO2. Remember the CO2, we're going to be talking about respiratory. This is when we're talking about metabolic acidosis. The lungs will compensate for this by trying to increase the minute ventilation. So this is trying to limit the amount of CO2, uh, which will hopefully drop the total amount of acid that's in the body to a normal pH level. Again, this is where we're seeing the compensation mechanism. So this would be a compensated metabolic acidosis. You can split the metabolic acidosis further based on their causes. So there's several different causes, and this can result on an anion gap, or there's other causes that would not create this anion gap. This is going to be important when we think about our management. We'll talk about this at the end of this discussion too. We talk about base excess. This is all going to tie together, but it's important that you, uh, again, understand these, these basic principles. So anion gap is where you take the amount of measured cations, sodium, minus the amount of measured anions. This would be your chloride and bicarb. So theoretically, your body should be neutral from a charge standpoint. This would mean you have the same amount of positive cations and negative anions. So if we don't get zero for our equation, then there are more ions in the body that are not measured in that equation. The anion gap will equal the amount of these unaccounted for anions. So a normal anion gap is going to be between 8 to 12 milliequivalents per liter. If there's an increased anion gap, then this means that there are anions that are replacing some of the bicarb that are not going to be measured in that equation, such as uh, lactic acid. So things that could be causing this anion gap acidosis would include things like lactic acidosis. It could be alcohol, ketones, diabetic ketoacidosis, or uremia. And that's not an all-inclusive list by any means, but those are just some of the main things that we typically will see. So it's important here to understand that equation when we jump into non-anion gap to understand the difference. And that's the fact that we're not taking every ion in the body accounted for in this equation. We're just doing your sodium minus the chloride and the bicarb put together. So the, the only anions we're including in this equation are chloride and bicarb. So when bicarb is being reduced, causing this metabolic acidosis, if some other acid is taking the place, some other negatively charged anion acid is taking the place of bicarb, such as the lactic acid, methanol, ethanol, ketones, wh whatever it may be, we're not then going to be putting a high number for bicarb in this equation, which is why we get a, a total end result in this equation, an increased number. And that's why we have what we consider an increased anion gap. 
Now, when you have a non-anion gap, when you have metabolic acidosis, you're still having a reduced amount of bicarb. That's the reason we're in this metabolic acidotic state is because bicarb is reduced. But why does our anion gap equation not change? And that's because the thing taking the place of bicarb is the other anion that we're already including in the equation, which is chlorine. So chlorine is going to be increased and taking the place of bicarb, which is being decreased. But because we're adding those two values together anyway in this equation, it doesn't change the end result. The anion gap total equation result stays the same. It stays in a normal range. So really then, if you have a non-anion gap, metabolic acidosis, you're having a decreased bicarb, but you have an increased chlorine. And so when we look at the causes of this, you have to figure out, well, what is causing the chlorine to be increased while the bicarb is decreased? And causes of this, the main one is diarrhea, or the second one uh, is excessive chlorine administration or chloride administration. Typically, the way that we see this in a hospital-based setting is we give too much normal saline. And remember, normal saline has both sodium and chloride in it. And so you're going to be getting a lot more of that chlorine put in or that chloride ions put into the patient. So how do you treat this? Well, when you're treating metabolic acidosis, you have to treat it based on the root cause of if it's an anion gap or if it's not an anion gap. So if there's no anion gap, then that means the problem is we have excess chlorine compared to the bicarb. So as a result, it's pretty easy to treat. A, you just minimize the amount of chlorine the patient's getting, but then B, you can simply just replace the bicarb because there's just an altered ratio there. We just need to give the patient more bicarb. But the tricky thing happens is when you have a metabolic acidosis with an anion gap, because by simply giving bicarb, you're not treating the root cause. It's not a ratio issue between chlorine and bicarb. The root cause is you have some extraneous acid that is being put in the body or made in the body with a negative charge, which is taking the place of bicarb. So for example, let's say it's the lactic acid. The lactic acid is high causing this. Well, we have to treat the root cause in order to fix this metabolic acidosis. I can give the patient bicarb, but it's only going to act as a band-aid for a couple minutes to neutralize whatever some of the acid that is there, but more acid is going to continually be produced and that bicarb is just going to be used up while it neutralizes that. So that's not going to fix the problem. It's just going to be a band-aid to buy you more time. So if the patient has a high lactic, the way you treat it is, well, you got to figure out what's causing the lactic to be increased. So lactic acid is a byproduct of anaerobic respiration. So instead of having oxygen brought to the tissues and you have aerobic respiration, when oxygen is not present, when you're not perfusing well to those tissues, they'll perform anaerobic respiration and produce this lactic acid. So the way we fix this is we got to increase perfusion to the tissues, whether we get uh, more fluids, whether we do pressure support, et cetera, whatever you do to fix that problem will then lower the amount of lactic acid being produced which will then correct your anion gap, which will then correct your pH level, and you will not be metabolically acidotic anymore. Uh, the same is true for uh, diabetic ketoacidosis state. If that's the case, you treat the cause. You give IV fluids, you give insulin therapy, you, cor you correct their diabetic ketoacidotic state, then you'll correct their metabolic acidotic state. So hopefully that makes sense. 
that if it's a non-anion gap, you can just get bicarbonate that'll fix it and then decrease your chlorine. But if it's an anion gap, you have to treat the root cause. And the last point I want to mention with this is you can also increase your minute ventilation if you have a patient who is mechanically ventilated. So whether they're in the ICU or you brought them down and you're taking care of them under anesthesia, you can increase your minute ventilation because you have them mechanically ventilated. You're able to do so. And what that does is it compensates by lowering the amount of CO2 because you blow off a lot of CO2. And when you lower CO2, that means you increase your pH. So that's it's a way to compensate and try to raise that pH level back out of that acidotic state back to a normal level while you're treating the root cause. Are you looking to join an organization where you can work at your full scope of practice? Join Sound Anesthesia's team and benefit from CRNA leadership with over 20 years of experience. Sound CRNAs enjoy career development, a clear leadership pathway, robust well-being resources, and the ability to perform at the top of their license. Sound is dedicated to providing our CRNAs with the tools needed to thrive in their practice. With multiple nationwide opportunities, we are confident you will find the right program for you. Learn more at careers.soundphysicians.com. Nice. So that's metabolic acidosis. Let's talk about metabolic alkalosis. So this is when your pH is going to be above 7.45. This could be either due to an increased amount of bicarb or it could be a decreased amount of hydrogen ions. If you have a decreased amount of hydrogen ions. This is typically because of diuretic therapy. Think about if you have a patient that's on Lasix, you know you're going to you know, be losing uh, mainly potassium, but then you also could be losing uh, these hydrogen ions as well. Uh, it could also be through loss just through your GI system, through vomiting. If you have an increased amount of bicarb, that can be typically in relation to uh, the body's response to hypovolemia. So then your kidneys are going to reabsorb bicarb. Uh, hypokalemia, you'll see the same thing, or even hyperaldosteronism, you'll see uh, a increased reabsorption of the bicarb. And again, if that's not balanced, and if that is uh, too much, then this is where you're going to see the metabolic alkalosis. Typically, your body is going to try to compensate for that by decreasing your minute ventilation. Remember that if you're decreasing your minute ventilation, then that is going to cause your CO2 levels to rise. So we have a metabolic alkalosis, and then this is the respiratory compensation that is trying to manage that. So that will try to lower the pH again by allowing those CO2 levels to rise. Uh, the kidneys will also try to reabsorb more hydrogen. Again, remember that the kidney response is going to be much slower than the respiratory response. To treat this, you can reduce the cause of um, the hydrogen loss. So if you have a patient that is excessively vomiting, you can try to manage that. If it's an issue with the diuretic therapy, then obviously you'll want to try to manage that a different way. Typically, this isn't really something that we're doing in the anesthesia field, but it's important that you are aware of you know, the medications that they're on, say it's coming from the ICU to the OR, um, and it's something that you could see underlying. You could give acetazolamide, which will help the kidneys get rid of more bicarb is another option. The other thing I want to talk about here, um, here towards the end is the base excess or deficit. And this is something that I 
want to tie in with when Cole was talking about the uh, anion gap and that equation. I think it's important that we talk about the base excess deficit here at the end as well. Remember that this is basically the same thing. It's not basically the same thing. It is the same thing depending on which side of the equation you're looking at. So what I mean by that is that if you have a you know value reported to you as a base excess of negative eight, that is also the same thing as having a base deficit of eight. So these terms are used on you know interchangeably, and it's important that you don't get confused when you're looking at the negative or positive values here. And then you need to pay attention that if you're reporting it as a base excess or a base deficit. The actual definition of this is the amount of strong acid or base that must be added to each liter of oxygenated blood to return the pH to 7.4 at a temperature of 37 degrees. We know that temperature is going to alter um, these values. So it's important that's 37 degrees and then also PCO2 of 40 millimeters of mercury. The long short of what that means is if you think about the normal value for your bicarb, bicarb is going to be the main driver here for this value. Remember that the, the normal value for bicarb is 22 to 26. So it's a Think about that as a reference range of about four there. The normal goal for a base excess or deficit is going to be minus two to positive two mill equivalents per liter. So that's going to be the normal value. If you have something that is greater than plus two, then that is going to be a metabolic alkalosis. So think about you have increased bicarb, you have increased base excess, that's going to be greater than plus two, you have a metabolic alkalosis. If you have less than minus two, that's going to be a metabolic acidosis. What's important here is that you combine that base value with the anion gap reading to understand if it's going to be a non-gap or a anion gap process that's going on. Remember Cole mentioned that your non-GAP, those are going to be things like diarrhea, or if you're giving high volume sodium chloride, where you have an increased chloride level, your anion GAP is going to be things like ketoacidosis. So think about this. If you have a patient that is going to have a base deficit, typically you'll think of this in regards to, at least in the operating room, oftentimes we think of this as, okay, this patient needs more fluid because they have a base deficit of say minus eight. So now you're thinking, okay, we've got a lactic acidosis picture their base deficit is minus eight, need to give them more fluid. If their base deficit is minus eight, and then you look and it's a non-gap process that's going on, then this base deficit is not driven by a lactic acidosis or a problem there. It is driven, like Cole mentioned, by another process. Say we're just giving too much sodium chloride. So in this situation, just giving more fluid and increasing perfusion isn't going to help because you're not going to be fixing this acidotic pictures or you're going to give bicarb and it's simply going to be a Band-Aid. And this is where you need to understand what's really driving uh, the picture and combining that gap or non-gap picture with this base excess or base deficit, however you're going to look at it is going to be really important as you decide how you're going to manage these patients. So again, you know, I think in closing, it's important that we just think about maybe just an example to try to tie all this in together. And Cole, I can kind of walk through this and then um, you can help 
explain the you know different things that we're seeing. But let's say we have a patient and our pH is reading at 7.2. So we know right off the bat we're an acidemia, right? We're less than 7.35. We have an acidemia picture and we look at our CO2, which is the next thing that I look at. And let's say that our CO2 is 50. So we have our CO2 and our pH going in opposite directions. So before I even look at bicarb, I know this is a respiratory you know, problem that we're dealing with. So let's say that we have, you know, CO2 is 50. And now let's say that our bicarb is 26. So at this point, we are uncompensated respiratory acidosis. Now let's talk about uh, a different situation where let's say we have a patient whose pH is 7.1. So again, acidemic. Now let's look at our PaCO2 and we see that that is 32. So it's low. And then we look at our bicarb and our bicarb is 18. So we have a situation here where our bicarb is low, our CO2 and pH are trending in the same direction. So now we know this is a metabolic issue. And now let's say that our anion gap is 20. So we can say this is a metabolic acidosis. And if we also have our, we look at our base excess and it's minus eight. Now we have a situation where we have a anion gap with a negative eight base excess. This is where fluid resuscitation is going to be important because we're now we're trying to fix whatever the acidotic picture is. So if we have decreased perfusion, this would be something where if you have like lactic acidosis buildup because you have an anion gap, you also have a base deficit and we are in metabolic acidosis. So these are just, you know, not all encompassing, but uh, a few quick examples of what might be helpful when you're looking at these different things, kind of how you can work through each of the numbers to understand, you know, what you're actually seeing in the patient and then also what you can be doing to manage the different numbers that you're you're reading. So now let's say that you look at an ABG and the ABG shows a normal pH value. So you're 7.37. But when you look at your PaCO2 and your bicarb, you see some altered results. You see both the CO2 being out of its normal range and the bicarb being out of its normal range. When this is a case and your pH is still normal, it doesn't mean that you're completely fine. There's still something going on. And we just add the term compensated in front of it. So even though your pH is normal, how do you figure out then if it's a, an acidosis or a alkalosis picture? And so what you do is, you, well, you look at the two values. So let's say you're 7.37 on your pH and your bicarb is 14. So your bicarb's low. And then you look at your PaCO2 and your PaCO2 is 31, which tells you that is also low. So the question is, 
well, what am I? Am I metabolic acidosis? Am I respiratory alkalosis? I mean, how do you figure out what you are? And so here's what you do. So you look at, well, what is what is the pH kind of leaning towards? And it's leaning towards the lower side. It's 7.37. So it's, it's closer to the lower edge, which is the acidotic picture. And you got to say, well, does that make sense? Let's look at our either our CO2 or our bicarb and what's leaning in the, the direction that we would say is an acidotic picture. Well, if the respiratory uh, CO2 problem would be causing the acidosis, what would we see? Well, the CO2 should be high in that situation if it's causing the pH to go low. But that's not the case here. We have a low CO2. And then we look at our bicarb and our bicarb is low. And we know that a low bicarb also matches acidosis. So I'm going to say we're in a metabolic acidosis picture. But why is our pH normal? Well, that's because you're compensating with your respiratory system, with your minute ventilation. The body's minute ventilation is increased which is lowering your CO2 in order to compensate for that. And so because you have a lower CO2, it's driving what would have been a acidotic pH value back up into the normal range of 7.37. So hopefully that makes sense that when you get a normal pH value, don't simply move on and think that you're good. You also need to look at what is your CO2 level and what does your bicarb level look like? Is it still in a normal range? And if not, then you're going to have probably some compensated picture. Um, so I know this is uh, a very meaty uh, two episodes that we did. There's a lot of information packed into these two episodes. Hopefully, you're able to follow through with us. Uh, we didn't uh, confuse you more. Uh, I know this is something that has always been a confusing topic for a lot of people, but it's something that is very important because if we understand this, we're going to be able to dramatically help our patients. We're going to be able to figure out ways to improve their pH balance and get them more uh, stable and, and a more hemodynamically stable spot, moving them back out of their our, our anesthetic and whether they're going back to the ICU, whether they're going to recovery, et cetera. We're going to be able to, to better manage them appropriately uh, to set them up for a better success moving forward uh, in, in their recovery to whatever uh, was going on in the first place with them. So again, if you if you hadn't had a chance to listen to part one, I really encourage you to go back and do so. We went through just the more background of what is going on uh, internally uh, with the chemical balances with all of these these molecules, the CO2, the bicarb, how that alters your pH, et cetera. And then we really walked in now in this episode, how to interpret those ABG results and what are the interventions that we're going to do.